I'm Scott Lucas. This is World Unfiltered. Welcome to the second part of a two-part World Unfiltered special about a part of the world, the South Caucasus, Azerbaijan, Armenia. The both countries who are relatively young as nation states since the 1990s, but both countries with long histories, with long established cultures. Yet at the same time, countries who in their strategic position from the Caspian Sea across to Turkey are caught between other powers who quite often have shaped, arguably dominated them. Turkey, the Soviet Union, now Russia, and Iran. And of course, with Azerbaijan and Armenia, although it's not the only issue we should consider, the headline issue is of the recent conflict over the Karabakh region, which has led to a uneasy settlement, but one in which Armenia has lost territory, both within Karabakh, or at least lost control of that region within Azerbaijan, and also lost arguably influence. So what now for this young nation state? Well, I'm gonna to turn to Richard Gergosian. Uh, Richard is the director of the Regional Study Center in the capital of Armenia, Yerevan. He has also been a consultant um, for many years on Capitol Hill about the region and a consultant for many international bodies about issues like democracy, legitimacy, and stability. So get ready to learn. Richard, thank you for joining us on World Unfiltered. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> Richard, I um, guess I will start off with a question that I also posed to uh, Ambassador Farid Shafiev when I spoke to him in the first part of this about Azerbaijan. Uh, and forgive me if it's a bit naive, but why should the world care about Armenia? Why should we look at it in Europe or in the United States of being of interest to quote us? Well, that's a very good question. And I would say simply for two reasons, one of which you already opened with, the strategic location, the geography, placing Armenia on a crossroads between East and West, between the Middle East and the former Soviet Union, bordering Turkey and Iran, as well as Azerbaijan. This is strategically of geopolitical imperative and importance. But the second reason is perhaps even more persuasive and pertinent. That is in 2018, Armenia had a nonviolent revolution, so-called velvet revolution that changed the government and established a much more democratic, popular government in a rare example of a victory of people power based on nonviolence. This is especially important today in terms of Armenia being on the front line of democratic change. Armenia actually from that revolution of 2018 was able to accomplish a rare free and fair election and garner a degree of legitimacy that is woefully missing in other post-Soviet republics. The revolution in Armenia also placed Armenia on the same level of importance as Ukraine and what's happening in Belarus, for example. And in this context, the fate of Armenia as a infant struggling democracy, I would argue necessitates support, but also demonstrates why this country in this particular region is all the more important. Okay, but with this, as it were, nascent 
you know, new government, post-revolution, looking for legitimacy, you put a question mark over it earlier this month. So in a briefing for the Regional Studies Center, the end of the post-revolution honeymoon, question mark. Now, clearly this is coming after the loss to Azerbaijan in the Second Karabakh War last autumn, but also it comes in light of questions regarding the political legitimacy of the government under the prime minister and once revolutionary uh, Prime Minister Pashinyan. It comes in an economic downturn, which has been linked to the COVID crisis, which has checked what had been a pretty good record of economic growth. So where are the immediate issues now? Is it a question very much that Karabakh is still at the center of this? Is it a government trying to regain legitimacy as a post-revolutionary government? Or is it economic issues that are the immediate challenge now in Yerevan? The easy answer is all of the above. But as an analyst, let me clarify. There are two different sets of challenges or threats, external and internal. First, looking at the internal dynamics. We do see a crisis of confidence and a political crisis that's lingering in Armenian politics. The reason for this is on the one hand, the government's failure to prepare the population for the severity and scale of the military loss in the war over Nagorno-Karabakh with neighboring Azerbaijan. There is a degree of shock and frustration that has obvious political implications. However, the government is in a stronger position based on the legitimacy from a free and fair election and the lack of credibility or the lack of viability of the opposition, which is largely tainted by its ties to the former authoritarian government. The external environment, however, is equally challenging. And this unfortunately stems from the loss militarily in the war, where there are now two dangerous precedents or implications. The first is the struggling democracy of Armenia was actually attacked by two authoritarian countries, Azerbaijan and Turkey. Turkey unprecedented role in providing direct military support for Azerbaijan. And the war was stopped or suspended after 44 days by a third authoritarian state, Russia. This in many ways has shaken the confidence of the population in democratic institutions, where the European Union and the US at that time was perhaps uh, lacking the legitimate leverage to intervene or interfere. The second dangerous precedent that has repercussions for say Crimea and Ukraine is the end of the war and the military victory by Azerbaijan tends to unfortunately demonstrate that there is a military solution to essentially political conflicts. This is a dangerous precedent if left unchallenged could establish a precedent of might makes right. But coupled with this going forward, my criticism here in Armenia is the failure of the government to adapt and to adopt a realistic adjustment to a new reality in terms of accepting the defeat, but ensuring that the defeat doesn't become a staggering loss. In other words, 
to adjust to a new reality, to return to diplomacy with Azerbaijan, and to ascertain lessons learned. And in this regard, the Armenian government has neither a, a new diplomatic strategy nor much of a strategic vision with end state objectives. So more than this is premature to predict what actually will happen. And unfortunately, the only winner in this situation is Russia in terms of its unilateral deployment of peacekeepers and in effect, showing the weakness of the West. And in this context, it's perception that matters as much as reality. So if you're a government advisor at this point, and you've, you've indicated, you would say, look, you've almost in a sense got to cut your losses, or as you put it, accept the reality in Karabakh. Do you make that your headline issue with the population? We're gonna to try to resolve this, draw the line on it. Or do you actually try to put it to the side and focus, for example, on dealing with trying to, to get an economic recovery out of coronavirus, get back to the growth rate that was there in 2018, 2019? Well, counterintuitively, I would normally emphasize the economic necessity of recovery from COVID-19, but counterintuitively in this context, I wouldn't. My priority would be Nagorno-Karabakh, in terms of saving and salvaging what's left of the Armenian population and adjusting to a new reality to prepare for the future, where the future is very much uncertain, but necessitates diplomatic preparation. In terms of lifting all boats, in terms of resolving the conflict as a prerequisite to the economic recovery that's driven by the necessity to overcome COVID-19. In this context, the real challenge is much harder for the Armenian government because the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, unfortunately, erupted well before independence. It erupted during the Gorbachev period in the waning years of the Soviet Union and tended to distort as well as define the development and political trajectory of both Armenia and Azerbaijan. This is, in other words, a hell of a legacy to be overcoming and to manage. Well, let me get back to that, that useful history you introduced, because you have the first Karabakh War from about 1988 to 1994. Why was it not possible to get an accommodation in the aftermath of that first conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia you know, in, in this space of what, almost, well, more than 25 years between the two conflicts? Was it simply Armenian triumphalism? Was it the, the invested identity of each side in Karabakh as an issue? Why didn't we get a resolution which avoided what happened last autumn? Well, I would indict all sides. In other words, there were significant missed opportunities and it is an indictment of the lack of statesmanship in both countries, Armenia and Azerbaijan. What also happened is by 1994, there was a ceasefire that virtually froze the conflict where several districts of Azerbaijan beyond the borders of Nagorno-Karabakh were held and seized by the Armenian side as a buffer zone, if you will. This led to a rather dangerous, but somewhat natural policy of 
arrogance, if you will, matched by maximalist positions by Azerbaijan, where the two sides were simply too far apart for any mediation to succeed. For Armenia, it fostered the myth of invincibility, thinking that they were the Israel of the region, but the recent war has really demonstrated that they were the Palestinians of the region, never missing an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Having said that, the nature of the government in Azerbaijan, a father-to-son dynasty with entrenched energy-related corruption, doesn't really add much in terms of a productive contribution to a new environment for conflict resolution. And realistically, without a democratic government in Azerbaijan, I'm not very confident going forward. Having said that, I think there should be much less tolerance for the lack of strategic vision and the absence of statesmanship, especially now. We've passed a tipping point of what I would call conflict fatigue, where the human cost of this conflict, of the war, has now been demonstrated. And it is a new period in both countries' future. And I do hope that we can create an environment of climate change to actually change the political narrative and to move forward to post-war resolution. Richard, you know, studying on this and with that excellent explanation you have, I've got a question about Nikol Pashinyan, the, the prime minister, you know, who comes in on this wave of the revolution uh, just over two years ago, former journalist, former political prisoner, the idea of dealing with corruption, dealing with the old authoritarian Armenia. And you've praised that, that election that established him uh, in power in 2018. But yet Pashinyan is very hard line on, on Nagorno-Karabakh. The day after he's named prime minister, he goes for a victory day celebration in the main city in Karabakh, almost like a defiant gesture to Azerbaijan. And, and as a newcomer to this, I'm unsure, why? Why did he take such a hard line on that issue given his background? Well, interestingly, from a political science point of view, there was an interesting paradox. Pashinyan came to power very much as a populist. His agenda was much more about domestic uh, demands to fight corruption and to develop and deliver to the Armenian people. This was designed first in order to not provoke Russia from reacting, but also designed to play to his weaknesses. In other words, Pashinyan was the first leader after two former presidents that came to power from Nagorno-Karabakh and that came to power because of Nagorno-Karabakh, Pashinyan was this rare exception with no links, no baggage to the conflict or the war, and to overcompensate, unfortunately, he went too far in the other direction. And I do think it's related to his characteristic flaw as a leader of impulsive, emotional, and somewhat at times reckless decision-making process. And I think he created a situation without realizing the consequences. And unfortunately, there were a series of mistakes and missteps that contributed to moving both countries closer to war. 
Okay, so here we are now. In effect, that gamble of the government to elevate the Karabakh issue, uh, although, as you say, there's responsibility on all sides, but it leads to this conflict last autumn, and now you're facing loss rather than, as it were, the assertion of nationalism. Where do you go now? Uh, uh, do you go? Do you accept now that the Russians are the brokers that you have to work with them? in speaking to Azerbaijan at the highest level? Do you start with just confidence building measures such as the transport links that were discussed in the first working group discussion? Uh, or do you look back to uh, the Minsk process, which was there from 1994 until 2020 with France, the US and the Soviet Union in the lead, and in a hope, as it were, try to balance the Russians in getting some type of negotiation? Well, first diplomatically, there's an interesting contradiction. The reality on the ground is that Russia and only Russia is now responsible for ensuring the safety and security in the broader region, even beyond Nagorno-Karabakh. The unilateral peacekeepers deployed by Russia were the only effective avenue to suspend hostilities. What's interesting, however, the Russian-imposed ceasefire agreement does far too little to settle the conflict. And the paradox is what's required now is the return of the traditional mediators from the OSCE Minsk group, the three countries, France, the United States, and Russia. Ironically, Russia's unilateral deployment has been greatly legitimized by France and the United States, whether we like it or not, in terms of the only way to halt the fighting. Russia, to its credit, on this one issue and this one conflict is working with the West, not against the West. We need to actually broaden that in terms of Russia with Paris and Washington being a stakeholder in regional security and stability. Now, this is an important opening in a rather complicated, pattern of confrontation between Russia, Turkey, and the West. But at the same time, I would argue the imperative now is much more human, much more immediate. It's the urgency for Azerbaijan to return their prisoners of war and the civilian hostages that have been seized. This is the priority of the ceasefire agreement, but unfortunately remains unfulfilled. And unfortunately, it's Azerbaijan and only Azerbaijan that has these prisoners that must be returned. Realistically, until that happens, we won't be able to move forward. Once that does happen, however, I do think a return to diplomacy coupled with the planned restoration of regional trade and transport adds a new economic incentive that's never been uh, present before in a very positive way. So putting on your Washington hat, do you sense, because we've had a detachment of the United States under the Trump administration, generally from this area, do you sense the Biden administration will return to the lead in the Minsk process and try to, to be part of this alongside the Russians? Well, the short answer as a Democrat is having worked in the US Senate where I served, um, and knowing then-Senator Biden, 
I do sense a degree of commitment for American re-engagement in the region and in the peace process. The longer answer, however, is that the U.S. has been disengaged over a longer period of time, from the Bush through the Obama administrations. This region was for too long a subset of U.S.-Russian relations. So while I expect a U.S. re-engagement, it won't be easy, especially given the uh, tense relationship with Turkey today, but also dealing with Putin in Russia. Having said that, nature like geopolitics abhors a vacuum and we do need a western recommitment to fill the vacuum whether it's also the european union as much as the united states will also be a crucial test but the worst part is over i would argue in terms of we have a post-war opportunity here to stabilize and to resolve long-standing legacy problems and conflicts. This is why even the opening of the closed border between Turkey and Armenia could very much be a positive game changer here. Uh, just one more question on Karabakh, which uh, Azerbaijani public commentators, they'll look at France, including the French Senate decision, which they say favored Armenia uh, over the conflict. They will talk about, and I'm sure you've heard this quote, the Armenian lobby in the United States. If the Biden administration was to step off, do you think there, there would be enough buy-in from the Azerbaijani side to accept the Americans back in rather than putting their reliance really on might makes right and holding back on any type of resolution? I would say yes, but the reason I'm optimistic is also an optimism that's longer term. In other words, in the immediate period, the short term, there's little likelihood. Azerbaijan still remains a little dangerously overconfident and rather arrogant with its first military victory in years. And unfortunately for the nature of the government in Azerbaijan, this is a very useful domestic distraction. Having said that, I do think President Aliyev of Azerbaijan is in a very dangerous, precarious position, caught between Turkey and Russia, and in many ways will welcome the US to re-engage, to balance the threat from Russian peacekeepers uh, for the stability of Azerbaijan. And I do think that balancing act, as difficult as it may be, is the only way forward, both for Armenia and Azerbaijan. Having said that, that pre-assumes or requires as a prerequisite a degree of strategic thinking that is more often than not been missing in the region. So in other words, it remains to be seen whether this will actually work. Let me widen out to another regional issue, if I can do, which, which you briefly alluded to, which is uh, Armenia's position vis-a-vis -vis Turkey. Now, I dare say many viewers, if they know anything about Armenia, will know about, for example, um, the history between Turkey and Armenia, including the, what some would call genocide, others would say mass killings, uh, dating back uh, during World War I. Uh, but more recently, we have the reality that it was Turkey that backed Azerbaijan during the Karabakh conflict with what some would say was a fairly decisive input, especially in terms of air power. Uh, 
Um, yet at the same time, you said really that Armenia should look to open up borders with Turkey. Is it possible to set aside both, you know, the ongoing, as it were, cultural dynamic and recent history to have that opening, that rapprochement between Ankara and Yerevan? Well, on the one hand, I've been working with the current Armenian government and the previous Armenian government in terms of supporting normalization of relations, which is basic. Literally, it's back to basics in terms of Armenia and Turkey would establish diplomatic relations and Turkey would reopen the border it closed with Armenia. This is far from reconciliation and had nothing to do with the genocide or Nagorno-Karabakh. In the current environment, however, domestically within Armenia, it's unlikely anytime soon, given Turkey's de decisive, but also divisive military support for Azerbaijan. I do think, however, it's likely to occur a reopening of the border but more as a deal between Turkey and Russia, because Armenia is now a member of Russian President Putin's Eurasian Economic Union. And this may be a reopening in the broader context of all regional restoration of trade and transport. Nevertheless, there is little argument against opening the border. In other words, it makes no sense to keep the border closed. And Turkey, to be honest, has much less justification now that Azerbaijan has won the war. This is why the Armenian foreign, uh, foreign minister in recent weeks has actually gone to the Armenian parliament advocating for Turkey to reopen the border and normalization. And it is a positive game changer. But for the Armenian government, it may be imposed in terms of a deal much higher than Armenia, but between Russia and Turkey. Because it's Russian border guards that are on that border, it's the Russian-owned sectors of the Armenian economy that could benefit. Nevertheless, it could be a very positive development. Let me uh, stick with that, that theme, that glimmer as it were. We talked a lot about high-level politics, military activity for obvious reasons. But there has been a lot of discussion in recent weeks from, I have to say, both sides, from Armenia and from Azerbaijan uh, commentators about the possibility of business links, of civil society being a way out of this, that you work almost from the ground up. Do you see the possibility that there could be, as it were, civil society links reaching across Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Turkey as an alternative to what we've seen has been the conflict of recent decades, or is that something that is a bit utopian at this point? No, I think it's both practical, but also demonstrable. In other words, in terms of Armenia-Turkey, there has been a broadening of the constituency of engagement in, in terms of support for normalization on a civil society level. On Armenia-Azerbaijan, there's been a track two effort at diplomatic engagement. I do think once we overcome the pressing urgency of getting all the prisoners and civilian hostages back to Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh, then we have a clean slate of re-engagement of track two, where I think both governments in Armenia and Azerbaijan will actually um, support and at least allow 
And I do think this bottom-up broadening of the constituency will actually give the governments in the region the space politically in terms of taking the heat, if you will. And I do think the one advantage here is the war is over, but the conflict is now returning to diplomacy. Nagorno-Karabakh is not uh, defeated in terms of political status. This remains the subject of diplomatic negotiations. So I do sense a degree of opportunity where civil society engagement will actually contribute to a more positive opening and environment. Okay, big finish. Bring it all together, Karabakh, the region, but internal issues. Um, now, what, almost two and a half years after the 2018 revolution, after a system which could claim legitimacy, uh, we arguably are facing erosion and stalemate on multiple fronts of this for Armenia. Is there a way out this year of that erosion and stalemate for the government and more importantly, Armenians? Well, I'm optimistic for two reasons. One, as someone who chose to live here, moving here from the United States, I'm just justifiably optimistic. In the United States, we have a concept too big to fail. In the case of Armenia, I would argue Armenia is too small to fail. And what I mean is the country of Armenia is so small in size, territory, and population that it doesn't take much and it doesn't take many for real change. And that democratic change is already underway. We've gone too far to go backwards. There's less danger of regress and retreat. And the Armenian nation, if nothing else, is a nation of survivors after all. The second reason I'm optimistic is the timing. Coming out of COVID-19, which was a pandemic where Armenia and Azerbaijan were already at war before Nagorno-Karabakh conflict erupted lately. The war was against the coronavirus. What this means is, as we move beyond vaccination to recovery, we have a reshaping and a reconfiguration of global and regional supply chains, economic drivers and trends, that are now going to be brand new and revolutionary in everything from energy to consumer goods. And I do think the economic imperative of recovery will overcome constraints of nationalism or conflict. I'll take that. Uh, I really appreciate, as it were, a little bit of light at the end of what has been, uh, at least if not dark, a very gloomy period. Uh, Richard Garagosian, I hope you'll come back and rejoin us uh, later to uh, sort of update on whether that light expands. Uh, thank you so much for joining World Unfiltered. Let me thank the good folks at Deep Dive Politics uh, for holding it all together while we've been chatting. And most of all, let me thank you all, the viewers, uh, for being alongside me as we learn about this key area. We'll be back pretty soon. Uh, looking at another key area of the world, which is going through quite a bit of change, possibly with echoes of 2018 in Armenia, and that's Belarus. But until then, let me just say, y'all stay safe, stay sane, and be decent to each other, 
you can follow us on Deep Dive Politics on Facebook, Dive underscore Politics on Twitter, and uh, all of our videos, which are on YouTube. You can also choose to listen to them on podcast and on Spotify. But for now, y'all take care. I'm Scott Lucas. This has been World Unfiltered. Thank you.